This is a Sunday talk by Todd Corbett, titled "Tag You're It," recorded July twentieth, two thousand and eight, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So, as I said earlier, mystics tend to concur on one point: that enlightenment is already present in each of us. That which is looking out through your eyes is the awake essence. And then the question is, once again, well, why don't we know that? Why don't we see that? Recognize that immediately. Korean Zen master Chinul states, the discriminative thought process of ordinary men and women derive from the conditioned arising of this true nature. Since that nature is originally pure, if we empty ourselves of passion and simply trace back the radiance of the mind, then with only one thought, we can return to that original state of purity. Now, in this quote, there are a couple of things that are a little confusing. One is, he says that we can return to that original state of purity, but first part, he says that our awareness is that state of purity. So we need to return to something that is already here. It's a little bit of a puzzle. The other thing that's a little puzzling is he talks about passions like there's something wrong with them. Passions, they're wonderful. This whole world is an arising of passion, constant arising of passions. But the passion that he's referring to is this self-centered, afflicted passion. The passions that we experience when we're in rush hour traffic and the guy just won't get over. Come on over. What's wrong with you? Our anger, our frustration, our pride, our desires, our deep lusting desires. Must have, must have. Must get away, must get away. So what does he mean when he says, empty ourselves of afflicted passion, then? What does he mean? How do we empty ourselves? Well, I mean, we've all had the experience of being angry and not wanting to be angry. We're trying to get rid of the anger. And of course, that just makes us more angry. If you're angry and you're trying to get rid of the anger, that's very frustrating. Oh, I wish I wasn't so angry. <laughs> So what he's referring to, and what really all mystics that talk in terms of seeing into the nature of the truth, what they're all referring to is actually paying attention to what is here. And in the case of emotions, paying attention to the emotion and paying attention to what creates the environment for the emotion to arise. In other words, what is the motivation behind it? What is motivating that anger? 
Now, of course, we have all kinds of ideas when we're in traffic. We know. It's that guy up there. He's driving like an idiot. But actually, it's something that we're doing inside. And it is directly related to that first statement that I made. We are already awake. We are doing something that obstructs that seeing. What are we doing? We aren't paying attention. We're not seeing something that is taking place in every moment. Our attention is caught in something and it is moving and we are identified with that movement. What is it that is driving this process. You know, we can, we can have all kinds of platitudes about it, but then we come to the same question once again. What is driving it? And when we meditate, just as we did a few minutes ago, we can feel something. If we do it long enough and we begin to notice there is, an, there is a resistance, there is something there a resisting something, a feeling. Now, Long Chempa, who was a great uh, Tibetan Buddhist sage, wrote these words, and this is directly related to this, the cause, the cause. He says, in the forest, by the example of dead leaves, come to realize that the body, youth, and senses change gradually and do not possess any real, true essence. And by the example of the separation of leaves and trees, come to realize that friends, enemies, as well as one's own body are subject to dissociation. What is accumulated will be exhausted. Just as the example of the arising of reflections in ponds, come to realize that though the various phenomena appear, they have no true existence. They are like a mirage, like a water moon, you know, like when you see the moon reflected on a pond. He's saying all of our experiences are exactly like that. all of our experiences, everything. Now this sounds like some morbid rambling. The mind is not like this. It hears this though, and it may recognize intellectually that yes, it's true, the body will die. And so it becomes a platitude. It becomes a belief. Yes, the body will die. Kind of resigned to this. And in the process of, of laying out that platitude, we've hidden from something. We've hidden from something which is real, which is, which is real on a level that the mind cannot comprehend. We don't actually exist in any way that we believe we exist. 
What we experience is all empty, just as Longchenpa says. It's all like a water moon. Because the mind cannot deal with this on any level, because the mind cannot actually comprehend it, it begins to fragment and to reach out for something to hold on to. And this is the source of our deepest suffering. We can't actually recognize what it is because the mind is incapable of recognizing it. It can see, though, and if it goes deep enough into it, it will catch glimpses, and they are frightening glimpses. Ayakema, a Theravadan Buddhist nun, describes this fear encountered in meditation. She says, It is the fear of annihilation of this supposed person, either through physical death or not enough emotional ego support. Mostly that. And it may arise particularly when we come near to seeing impermanence in ourselves very strongly. Then there is a great fear, even panic, that we may find a truth we don't want to know, namely that this identity, this personality, is a myth. Fear is the first and foremost hindrance to going deeper. The remedy is perseverance in practice. And so we find meditation, and this is the primary practice of the mystics, to allow our attention to settle in and to be still. And the value is, the value of practice is the resistance to it. And if we really enjoy our meditation and it becomes like our hobby, we're missing something huge. We need to uh, go a little bit deeper So if we persevere, like she says, we will see directly how fear triggers a kind of unrest. In a moment of stillness where there are no thoughts, this awakeness is here. This enlightenment is showing itself. But suddenly there is this energy, fear, this powerful force, this... We call it fear. Suddenly there is a recognition of fear, and in that moment, I am birthed. There is a sense of me having fear. And then in that moment, we don't know what to do with it. And so instantly we start, the mind starts to spin. Now there is the sense of me restless, wanting, needing something trying to feel better, trying to get away from the fear, trying to reach something will make us feel relaxed, happy. We want happiness. So it's really, really important for us to see how this process 
operates. And through our meditation practices, we have this perfect opportunity. It's like we're in a laboratory. We've basically controlled all of the variables that can confuse us, and we're just watching what is taking place in this moment, in the mind. We begin to see that we're kind of like a squid. You know how when squid are frightened, they shoot out ink. It's like this. suddenly there's this cloud of ink, and then the squid skedaddles. And then whatever the, the whatever was frightening them is looking in this ink, trying to find him, and he's long gone. And that's kind of what we do. Through this restlessness, through this instantaneous fear, rather than investigating the source of the fear, we shoot out ink to struggle to get away from it. And in so doing, we reify, make real, our sense of some separate being. I'm somebody now, and I'm afraid. But it moves quickly, very quickly. So this fear moves towards anger, and then blaming. It's a constant, it's, it's this thing that's constantly in motion, constantly changing. And suddenly we're blaming that guy in the car up there. He can't drive right. What's wrong with him? We're not seeing that this whole process is something that's going on within us. Every time we move through this conditioned process, we are creating the conditioning. We are creating the sense of self. In essence, all of these movements are just covering over our non-existence. It seems like it would be so much simpler just to recognize our non-existence. But the fear is tremendous. And the reason the fear is tremendous is because we have so many platitudes and so many beliefs to spin us away from it rather than going back in. We haven't practiced going back into the fear, into the terror. What would it mean to be in the terror? So we use this process of restlessness to build up a kind of a crust, the sense of me. And the crust is belief. We suddenly have belief about everything. My name is Todd. And there's a lot of people in this room. The wind is blowing outside. And these are, you know, we know they're true. And if someone told us that they weren't true, we'd get upset. At least on some level, it would be disturbing. We might say, well, that person's nuts. So in the process of being restless, we form, we identify objects, this is part of the process. We look out and we see color and lines and movement. And we're, we're afraid. We have to know what that is. And so we see this and we go, I know what that is. That's a hand. That's a hand. 
and now I'm comfortable. But if I didn't know what that was, I'd be very quick to want to know. It's got these funny little things. What are they? Oh, it's a hand. Then we know. Now we know what this is. There's no question about what this is. But in fact, what we've done is we've named something which we don't, we don't know what it is. We've named it. Now we have a name for it. But we still don't know what it is. Do you hear what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But this is the way the mind works. We live in a world of make-believe and dreams, as Simone Wilder, the Christian mystic, says. And it's true. And where does this come from? It comes from naming everything and then believing that these things are the reality. That they are really true and really real. But in fact, we don't know what any of it is. And if we could simply know that beyond a question, and it's a not knowing, really. It's a surrender. When we reach that point then we're ready to listen to what is truly here. But as long as our ideas are demanding that they be the truth, we can never be aware of what's really here. It's constantly hiding from us through something that we're creating. Fear, then, creates this whole process. Restlessness, and then we begin naming, and then we start grasping. Some of these things we like. Some of these things we don't like. We become very fixated on likes and dislikes. And that becomes me and my world. This is the way the sense of self is developed. It's all about this fear. This fear. But it's so funny because fear and love, they're really not different. We'll come to that in a minute. Here's a quote from Longchenpa again. I quote these, the Buddhists, only because they seem to really kind of focus in on some very precise language. Although if you go to the Christian or Jewish, the Hindu or Islamistics, you'll find that they actually are very precise as well. But anyway, um, Longchenpa states, Thus, once the idea of I and mine has arisen, and through this process that we just described, once the idea of I and mine has arisen, the entire mechanism of sense objects and consciousness, or subject and object, proceeds in order to gratify the acquisitiveness of this imagined I through concrete sensory experiences. The imagined I tries to make itself feel real by creating and pursuing these sensory experiences. So that's really it in a nutshell. Existence is contrived out of a moment-to-moment pushing away of non-existence. Now, yeah. it's so crazy. It's like non-existence begets existence. The fear of it, it's a response, it's a reaction. And we do it in every moment. It's like we're secreting 
the conditioning. It's already in place. It's like, you know, the, the, the endocrine glands secrete, the salivary glands secrete. It's a, it's a, it's a reflex almost. It's learned though. And it gives rise to this moment to moment struggle. And this moment-to-moment struggle is suffering. That is our suffering. The struggle itself is our sense of self. And the only suffering that goes on in this world is the suffering of self. The self, the struggle, the perceived me is in the process of creating itself by ignoring what is. The attention itself is is what is conditioned. It is conditioned to find itself in every moment. So if we don't find ourselves for a moment, fear arises, and then instantly we're finding ourselves again in something. Oh, is that a bird? Oh, yeah, I heard a bird. Or that driver that's cutting me off. They're all ways of affirming me. Now, what is truly paradoxical about all this is that neither existence nor non-existence are real. They're both dreams. They, they create one another. We have what appears to be non-existence, and then we have a reaction to it, fear, and then we create existence. But in fact, What was originally seen as non-existence is our true nature. It's not non-existence. It's the true beingness, the true existence that the mind has never tasted. can't know. So I've already alluded to this, but the question is then, what can we do to be free from this kind of Amazing ignorance. And it is amazing. What can we do? And really, it all comes down to paying attention. Paying attention to the moment-to-moment arising of likes and dislikes, primarily. And also, the way we ignore some things. Just being aware And in our practice, in our meditation practice, this is really what we're doing. We're watching what the mind does all day long, but we're looking at it in the microcosm. We're looking at the way it flexes in response to something. The mind can't see it, but when we get quiet enough, it's not, it's not really that we've become quiet. It's that the silence that is already there is just showing itself nakedly. That silence is just the absence of the mind's frenetic movements, constantly wanting. And all of this frenetic movement, of course, is bubbling up out of that fear, that anxiety of non-existence, which is totally imagined. And then we have precept practice, and Joel mentioned that earlier, that 
the way we use precepts at the center, we use them as kind of experiments in truth, experiments in life. We take precepts such as not to blame. And it's not like we're trying to be, you know, good. We're just simply wanting to see how is it that I am blaming other people for how I feel? How is it that this is happening? And we begin to recognize that it is a reflex that is learned. And as we get deeper into this, we begin to see that all of our feelings, all of this, it's reactivity. It's not responsiveness. It's a reaction which is conditioned to be there. And when it is seen nakedly, it is seen to be what it truly is. But in order to see nakedly, our attention must be stable. An attention that bounces all around, that immediately when it has an experience, launches into thought about the experience and doesn't notice that that has happened, that is an unstable attention. A stable attention is an attention that recognizes discursive conversation in the mind constantly when it happens. It is seeing what is actually here. So it, it's experiencing naked emotion. It's also recognizing thought as thought. It recognizes content of thought as content of thought. And if thought actually comes up with something useful, which it does once in a while, it will recognize, it's not denying anything, it will recognize, ah, oh, yeah. And the whole movement then will be towards that skillfulness, whatever that is that was useful as a thought. The whole mechanism of being will just turn in that way. It's just a natural movement. Have you ever seen like or watched birds natural gracefulness in flight. I had this experience a few weeks ago. I was walking up on this mountain road, this old logging road, and I saw this rustling in the bushes. And I came over to the edge of the road and I looked, and it looked like a buzzard landing in the, in the tree. But then when it straightened out all of its feathers, suddenly it became a, an owl, this big owl. And it was looking at me big black eyes. And I talked to it for a while. I tried to speak in its language. You know, I went, whoo, whoo. And it almost looked like it got angry. So I quit. And I started walking down the road. And I got almost out of view of the thing. And I, I turned around just to see. And just as I turned around, I saw it launch. And it was flying about this high off the ground, right at me. I had my little stick here, and I kind of held it up, thinking maybe it would land on it. So I held it up, but it didn't. It veered off, and it landed on the tree next to me. And I continued to walk, and it just kept doing that. It would sail down and land on the tree. And it would sail by me, and then it would sail back around. These stories that we have, that we experience in our lives, the story of the owl, the story of driving in traffic, they're all really equal. 
but we prefer one to the other. And we could ask, well, why is that? And once again, it goes back to this thing of likes and dislikes. It goes back to the basic issue of restlessness and fear. Once we have named things, then there are some things frighten us. We don't want them. We want the good stuff that's going to make us feel good and forget our difficulties. But both our grasping and our pushing away, they're both resistance. Both of them. Our identification, when we look at something and we see it, we see what we want to see, that is a resistance. We are resisting what is. We have a secret wish that it be a certain way, and we hold on to that. We believe that. But in fact, it's just exactly as it is. It's not any different than it is. What we experience in every moment is exactly as it needs to be. And any ideas that we have that prefer, that demand that they be other than that, those ideas are in the way of actually being present for what is here. When we experience fear, well, you know, if you're afraid or if you're angry, immediately the mind says, oh, I'm angry, and we're angry about being angry, just as I said earlier. It's in the, it's in the language. The word angry is just, it's just like this is a hand. It's not a hand. We don't know what it is. And when we know what it is, then we miss what is here. The same is true with, with anger. If we could feel anger as it truly is, or fear as it truly is, whoa, something has happened. It's not in the name. The name skews it. It makes it, the anger has a certain negative connotation. But actually, anger is just a, a heightened awareness. And it can be a perfect heightened awareness that allows you to launch right into perfect skillfulness. But if you're angry, then instantly it's a negative, it has a negative move to it. And it, and it begins, it's all about me and them. And we have this dualistic, uh, responsiveness. Now, when we recognize this is the process that is at play, there is a natural relaxation that begins to take place. We begin to settle down. Much of our problem in life is that we have been striving and striving and striving to be happy, but it never comes. We think it's come, and then it hasn't come. And then we think it's come, and then there it is again. We realize it's not here. I'm not happy. I know I got the new car. It made me feel good for a while, but now it's gone, and I'm not happy. Striving for happiness is what obstructs us from being aware of happiness. The happiness is what we already are. 
As long as we believe that we are something other than that, as long as we have expectations, we can never actually be happy with our immediate experience. And a little bit ago I mentioned that fear and love really are the same thing. Fear and love. And this is basically what I'm referring to, is that when you really allow fear to be there, first of all, that act of letting the fear be there within delusion is an act of love. It is a movement towards something that is frightening us. We could say it's courage, but once we have have glimpsed a recognition of of our spiritual nature, it becomes more of an act of love. We are willing to be with the fear. We are willing to be with our anger, our pride, our jealousy, our envy, or whatever it is, we're willing to be with our frustration. And just in the act of being willing, we transform it. And we see it as it actually is. We're no longer pushing it away. We're no no longer couching it in some kind of a reflex. We are seeing it as it truly is. And in seeing it that way, we recognize, and it is a direct, intuitive recognition, that the fear is love. And in that moment, we recognize that fear is clarity. It's this immense clarity. It's, It's awareness aware of itself. Consciousness, aware of itself. So when we do our practices, sitting, and after we've broken through the initial period of of practices where we're just constantly struggling, we begin to recognize that every movement of the mind, every time the mind goes off, it's perfect. Awareness is right with it. This is mindfulness. We recognize, oh, and we just bring it back. Gentle. No need for some driven quality to arise. And if it does arise, we see that. Oh. And we just allow the attention to move back down into the simplicity of this moment just as it is. The sense of you is like a fire of passion. And the passion, as we said before, is born out of fear. And of course, as we also said before, this fear is love. It's just not being seen directly. And because it's not being seen directly, we're afraid and we develop this constant movement, this fire. What's interesting about this fire is that it is constantly needing fuel, just like any fire. It is never satisfied. And it will never be satisfied. We will never reach the end of this process. 
The mind constantly is going. It will never stop unless we begin to examine what is driving it. What is driving the mind? These passions. These afflicted passions. They need to be seen nakedly as they truly are. And when they are seen in this way, they take us to our knees. True humility is possible there. True humility. Once we see the futility of striving, striving for happiness, something powerful begins to happen. We lose that frenetic energy, that demand. Self-need begins to falter. A certain renunciation for outcomes. Just not that interested. And of course, this can become depressing if we aren't paying attention. We can go, we can become deranged if we're not paying attention. When we get to this place where we see the pointlessness of life, it's like a dark night for us. And it's something that you'll find in all spiritual paths. There's some period where people reach in their practice where it's, it's sad, it's troubling, but it's quiet. And we just gaze into this. We're aware of this. And we just allow it to be. This is that humility. We allow it to be. St. Joel talks of this as kenosis. A number of different traditions do. Kenosis. It's a process in which we've lost our zeal for life. (laughs) And in so doing, we are vulnerable to recognize what is already here, what is already here, what has been eluding us our whole life. So the question then for practice is, can we relax in this way, in this transience, allowing transience to be there, seeing transience, actually recognizing it moment to moment. Noticing that our thoughts are arising and each thought arises and it is gone. It is like lightning. When we become stable in our attention, we we can see this. Then there's another thought and another thought. And then there's an emotion. And when when we dwell in emotion, it's an energetic play. It is arising constantly new, passing away. When we listen to sounds, even sounds that seem to be constant and the same, we begin to notice it's always new, always new. Smells, always new. We begin to see that all of life is showing itself fresh and new constantly. When we are no longer struggling in anticipation 
and expectation. We see there is nothing to get, that we already have everything. Nothing to strive for. That's everything I had to say this morning. Any comments or questions? Yes. I have a little phrase that I say when the eye that the little eye starts flailing and scrambling, I say, She's with me. Uh. She's with me. She's with me. Oh, that's <laughs> She's okay. She's yeah, she's she's a little sweetheart. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That's good. That's good. I like that. <laughs> yes. They speak of this. Um, Dark, dark period where there's no, you know, quote unquote zeal, and um, I'm sort of, I, I feel like I'm in that place <clears throat> where um, there's this lack of excitement for anything. I'm at a, a turning point where I, there's different opportunities to choose from for what to do, you know, in my life. And I, I get confused about the doing and the being, and um, and yet I have no excitement to do. I don't know. I mean, I, I just have a lot of confusion around that. And, sure. And in my practice, just keep asking, you know, to be shown for guidance. And I guess I feel a little impatient around that. Ah. Oh, and you know, kind of want to know, want to know, and. It's, I feel crazy, you know? So there you are, you're seeing it. You're actually... I, I know I am. Then what? Yeah, but... Then what? I know, then what? That's it. See, then what? So, so what? what's next? That's what's next. That. We want something. And what are we missing? We're missing the desire. We want something else. We don't want desire. So what happens when we just hang out with the desire? The desire to kind of get to the point here. I want to I want to get to a place where I know what to do. <laughs> See that desire, that that movement towards resolution itself is your enlightened nature. Just allow it to be there just as it is. It's a it's a process of surrender. How can you surrender if you're constantly well, okay, I'm surrendered, now what? Yeah. But well, here's, here's the thing, is that, like, I, w I want to surrender. I want to surrender. I really do. Of course, <laughs> that's it. Ah. But there's, like, this thing called paying the rent and supporting my child, and it's like, there, there's a, almost a desperation around that, like, well, how am I going to do that? Yes. And and a desire and and a want I do want to surrender and there's a desire the desire to surrender, and and just let things flow and know that it'll be okay. Um, 
and yet there's that desire to know. So, so on the one hand, we have the practical stuff that you've got to take care of your kid. Right. You've got to take care of the rent. You have to take care of all these. These are practical matters. But we will go through periods where it's dark, where, oh my God, confusion arises. It's not wrong that confusion arises. And, and that's part of our problem. We think, well, I must get to the end of this. But the confusion itself, it's a mind state arising within your vastness. And it only wants to dance. And when, we, when, we, when we're not worrying about it and what am I doing wrong? What can I do to fix this? We just let it arise. We'll find that it already knows what it needs to do. It's all, the decisions just happen. They're like lightning. They just Once all the information is in, bang. Now, if you're ignoring it, it becomes something that we can't see. But if we're just open ourselves to our experience, then it's like we can, we can feel that frustration. And when we get up in the morning, we can actually, if, it, if it's strong enough and if it's a big enough issue, we can do 10 or 15 minutes of breath work or whatever, and then allow ourselves just to feel that frustration, whatever it is. Feel what that feels like. Let it be there totally. In the process of doing that, it's like lightning, we'll see. It's like a light comes on. Oh, I know what to do. But it isn't something that we can grasp for. And, and if we find, you know, we have to make a decision now and we haven't been able to sit with it, well, then we just do the best we can, you know. We muddle through it. But we pay attention as we muddle. We, we want to be aware as much as we can through every facet of our life. And of course, that's why we like to have our sitting practice every morning. And that's why we like to do the precepts. Because these are things which bring our attention into our little ways of reifying and making things other than what they truly are. I don't know. Is that helpful? Or? Okay. Good. Yes? Yeah, um... Sure, exactly what the question is. I'll try and make it concise. But I went on a retreat last month and um, I really had this experience of being awareness, you know, like that's who I am and not identifying with, you know, all these things I thought I was and realizing that's, you know, that the awareness is who I am and, you know, whether it's there's stress going on or happiness or bliss, you know, like those are all states and then I'm what's noticing all that stuff. And Wonderful. So, since the retreat, you know, that's still been very present, but what I notice is it's not so much fear that comes up, it's more just, it's like if you're trying to have good posture and you're standing up straight and then after a while you forget and you're kind of slumping over and, you know, it's the same thing, it's like, you know, it's like I'll notice kind of being caught up in thoughts and I'll, you know, you know who am I or who's noticing this and, you know, then there it is again, but it's, you know, but then after a while it's sort of, you know, kind of slouching again and, you know, it's like I keep coming back to that, so I'm just, you know, it's not so much a fear or, you know, it's, but it's just sort of... <laughs> it's an uneasiness. It's sort of a... It's like, okay, so if I'm just the awareness, why am I slumping? Why am I... Yeah. Yeah, like, what is... I should be upright and everything should be perfect, but... Well, not so much that it should be perfect. It's just that, you know, it's like a... You know, it's, there's less of that... Yeah. Um, clarity, you know, it's like I always know it. You know, it's always there. It doesn't go away. It's just... Good. You know, it's like I get... Oh, bad habits or get caught up in, you know, kind 
So this is what this is really kind of the process of, of awakening, really, what you're describing. We will have an awakening where we'll recognize ourselves as abiding awareness. And then we come off of retreat and we start functioning in the world and we'll have these things that'll come up and it's and we'll go, well, well wait a minute. There, I'm not seeing this so clearly anymore. No, I'm, I'm sort of caught up in something. You know, I'm, I'm identifying with my mind or whatever. But it's that you see. Once we have this awakeness, we see that that emotion through the true eyes. That awareness sees that, and it's no longer me seeing it. And we see the sweetness of it. It's there's nothing wrong here. This body is just a manifestation arising in this moment, passing away. And however it presents itself, if it's, if it's slumped, that's perfect. Just as it is. There's nothing really... You see, we have all kinds of platitudes about everything. And those platitudes get in the way of actual appreciation of what is here. The actual appreciation. And so... But you just keep coming back to that... Whatever you're doing, I'd say continue doing it. And just be aware of these things when they arise. Just recognize them. And then let it go. When you see it, in the moment of seeing, yes. I was interested in your comments about naming things as a substitute for understanding. Um, and have had this experience. I've been aware of this experience in myself. Um, a long time ago, I took a class in field botany, in which we just walked around outside and looked at trees and picked leaves and talked about their shape and all that. The main focus of this class was to name the tree. I mean, that's what you're going to be tested on. I became aware that when I would encounter a tree that I could not name, I felt uneasy. I felt, I don't know, you could even say a little anxiety, but there was an unease about not knowing what the name was. And once I got the name, it was like I had a handle on this tree. And it was, and then I felt relaxed. I felt, okay, I know this tree now. It was as if I understood the tree. And after a while, I became aware of something a little more subtle, and that is that the name was actually standing in the way of my understanding that tree. And something of the mystery and the marvelousness of the life of that tree was hidden by the name. That's exactly <laughs> it. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it, was, it was really kind of weird. And just to kind of take it a step farther, I kind of imagine myself and others I, I think I understand going into science. Uh, kind of driven by the, the mystery and the marvel of it all. But once they get into the science, they're totally distracted by all you know, the taxonomies and the constructs around their science. And, and, and you know the social processes of whatever it is they're, they're doing. That they get out of touch with that, the mystery of, of what it is they first started out to get in touch with. You know? uh, so, um, so the question is, where do we, how do we balance this, this act? How do, we, how do we be in both worlds? How as we, we go, as we continue to pay attention, just like what you described, 
You were saying how you noticed that the, that the names were getting in the way of what was actually there. And then you noticed how it was obstructing what was actually there. And, it, and it was, at first it was a good thing. Then we saw that, oh, it's, well, there's another step. And you begin to recognize even the naming, you don't know what that is. And you notice that it's happening by itself, constantly naming. So we can say, oh, it's just conditioning, you know, like I did in my talk. You realize that it's not anything that we think. And so we, we, we become relaxed about it all. We just settle back. And we realize that the process of naming is just a play. And that it's a way that we can dance in this form world, which is purely imaginary, water, moon, all of it including the words. And so there's really nothing wrong there. And we just, we allow it, and we dance in it, and we, we become awestruck. And that keeps us getting more subtle and more gentle with it. And then we just notice what it is. Absolutely notice what it is. Yes? Um, I had an experience when uh, Paul and I went to Peru I had, of course, brought my camera and like 10 rolls of film. And um, it's like, it was important, like when I first got there, it was really important to get a picture of this, you know, to preserve it for later. And then I was so concerned about getting these pictures so I'd have these memories later. That And I realized it's like, hey, I'm here now. I'm missing out on the experience trying to capture these pictures for later. Oh, that is great. And it was just a wonderful freedom to... And after that, I maybe took a couple pictures, you know, but it wasn't like I had to have that camera around my neck and getting every everything that That is wonderful, on. yes. And it was very wow. freeing. Wow, that's great. Well, you know, I had an experience with my mother like that. She came out years ago, and I was going to show her different things. Well, she had her video camera with her. And so everywhere we went, there was this video camera. With her. And it was like, oh, and then I go, well, mom, let's go to the sea lion cage. And I go, but you know, I don't think your, your camera's going to work very well there. And she goes, well, then let's not go. <laughs> it's the same crazy thing, isn't it? But what we notice is that when we grasp onto our experiences in that way, it's like our memories become all there is. And we are, are not, it's like they are the label, they are the template that we lay over all of our experience. And it limits. We only see a little bit of our experience because of, because we're, we're clinging to our expectation of what it's going to be. And it never is what we think. Never. Wonderful. Yeah. How many old people have only their memories? That's all they have when they get very old. They have only their memories, and they're missing the now. That no, is true. It's, it's true. It's, we can get like that early. <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. Well, you know, and then, of course, there's the Alzheimer's patients that uh, they don't have their memories either. And I've known, actually, it's interesting, a lot of them struggle and have a lot of difficulty as they're moving into it because they're really upset because they're losing their memory. But I've known a number of... Mostly women. I've known several women as patients in the hospital that they're just so sweet. <laughs> and, and it's kind of like they recognize the awakeness. It's like when I'm talking to it's like I feel the sense that 
they know. They know. Because they're not, they're not distracted by... It's, I don't advocate, you know, Alzheimer's. Yeah. Anymore, but, <laughs> We're all getting a little bit anyway. <laughs> That's right. So are there any other questions? We probably should draw this thing to a close here pretty soon. But uh, any last comment or question? I have a question about just what you were talking about with Alzheimer's. Oh, yeah. The person, you say that you, these patients that you've known and that they know and that there's a sweetness there and an appreciation for life as it is. But if they are disabled and they're just able to stay in one place mostly, let's say they can't, they're not mobile, and they have to be in a wheelchair or in a bed. And let's say the weather is not good, so they can't go outside. You know, like we can take walk, even if it's raining or it's cold, but they don't do that kind of thing. They just stay in one place. And maybe they don't have many people to see. They're alone a lot. So what is it that they're appreciating? When we aren't in anticipation of something being other than it is, then we just appreciate what is. We aren't expecting anything to be other than it is. In response to your question, I can't say what each person's experience is. They don't have a sense of fear about anything, and so they just lapse into what is. My mom's got dementia, and she's in Phoenix, Arizona. And she turned from a very judgmental, um, every victim all her life. And in dementia, I can spend, I used to spend three hours with her when I leave. I was with her two weeks, the last visit. And it's, it's she's a sweet woman now. <laughs> I if you leave, I, I hate to make this, don't make me to lower their humanness, but if you leave your dog alone, you know, all day. They don't know if you're two hours late or six hours they've been alone. That's the suffering. They're not like looking at anything. It's right there in front of them. Everything to her is right in front of her, and it, it's all good. And once they get over the paranoia and stuff like this, they have to be in good surroundings. But they know very, very little, and it is kind of a bliss that they get into, what I see. Um, uh, just 100% improvement in character. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. Oh. But you know, with that, we probably should call it a close. It's getting a little long here. So, till I see you all again, peace to you all. <laughs>